Meldoror by Comte de L'Entremont. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Meldoror by Comte de L'Entremont. Translated by John Rodker. In Broom, an international magazine of the arts, volume 3, number 1, August 1922. The Lay of Meldoror. First Canto. May it please heaven that the reader, emboldened and become temporarily ferocious, like what he is reading, will find his sudden and savage way across the lonely marshes of these somber and poison-filled pages without losing himself. For unless he bring to his reading a rigorous logic and tension of spirit equal at least to his suspicion, the mortal emanation of this book will soak his soul as water does sugar. It is not a good thing for all the world to read the pages which are about to follow. A few only will, without danger, taste this bitter fruit. Therefore, timid soul, before penetrating further into such unexplored territory, direct your heels backwards and not forwards. Listen well to what I say to you. Direct your heels backwards and not forwards like the eyes of a son who respectfully turns away from the august admiration of the maternal visage, or rather, like a wedge of deeply thoughtful and chilly cranes who under full sail fly powerfully through the winter across the silence, toward a certain point on the horizon whence comes suddenly a violent and strange wind, forerunner of the storm. The oldest crane, itself the vanguard, noting this, waves its head like a reasonable person. Consequently, its beak also is made to clap, and is not pleased. I, too, would not be happy were I in its place. While its aged neck, featherless and contemporary with three generations of cranes, moves in irritable undulations as presage of the storm which approaches nearer and nearer. After having looked several times coolly about her in all directions, with eyes full of experience, the leader prudently, for she it is who has the distinction of showing her tail feathers to the other cranes, her intellectual inferiors, with her watchful cry, as of a mournful sentinel, to repulse the common enemy, gracefully turns the point of the geometric figure and may be a triangle, but the third side, which these curious birds of passage form, like an experienced captain, whether to port or to starboard, is not seen, and maneuvering with wings hardly larger than a sparrow's, since she is no fool, takes another and surer philosophical path. By moonlight, near the sea, in remote parts of the countryside, plunged in bitter meditations, one sees everything take on yellow, doubtful, and fantastic shapes. Now quickly, now slowly, the trees' shadows run, approach and approach again in every shape, flattening themselves, pressing closely to earth. In the past, when I was carried away upon the wings of youth, that made me dream, seemed strange to me. Now I'm used to it. The wind moans through the leaves with languorous notes, and the owl recites its solemn lament, making the hair of those who hear it stand on end. Then the dogs, made savage, break their chains, escape from distant farms, fly through the countryside in all directions, a prey to madness. Suddenly they stop, examine, all round them with ferocious, disquiet eyes blazing, and like the elephants which throw round them in the desert one last look at the sky, 
despairingly raising their trunks before dying, their ears hanging inert, so the dogs leave their ears inert, lifting their heads, puffing out their dreadful necks and in turn, like a baby crying with hunger, or like a cat on a roof wounded in the belly, or like a woman about to bring forth, or like a plague-stricken moribund in hospital, or like a young girl singing a noble air, begin to bay the northern stars, the eastern stars, the southern stars, the western stars, the moons, the mountains resembling giant rocks reclining in darkness, the icy air they inhale deeply from a distance, and which makes the insides of their scarlet nostrils burn, the nocturnal silence, the screech owl carrying off a rat or a frog in its beak, living food tender for the living ones in oblique flight brushing their muzzles, the hairs disappearing in the twinkling of an eye, the thief who after his crime flies fast as hoofs will carry him, snakes disturbing the heather which makes their skin quiver and gnash their teeth, their own baying which frightens them, the toads they crush with one snap of the jaw, why did they leave the marsh? The trees whose gently waving leaves are so many uncomprehensible mysteries to them, which they wish to solve with their staring intelligent eyes, the spiders hanging among their long legs, who clamber up trees to save themselves, the crows who could not find anything to eat during the day and who return to the nest with tired wings the rocks of the shore, the fires which appear at the masts of individual vessels, the hollow noise of the waves, the great fish which, swimming, show their black backs, then disappear into the abysm, the man who enslaves them, after which they again rush through the countryside, leaping with bloody paws across ditches, roads, fields, passes, and craggy stones. One would think them mad, seeking some waste lake to quench their thirst. Their prolonged baying terrifies nature. Woe to the belated traveler. The cemetery's friends will cast themselves upon him, will tear him, will eat him with blood-dripping fangs, for their teeth are not decayed. The wild beasts, not daring to approach and take part in the meal of flesh, fly trembling out of sight. After some hours, the dogs, harassed by running in all directions and half-dead tongues hanging from their mouths without knowing what they are doing, fall with an incredible swiftness, one upon the other, tearing each other into a thousand pieces. They do not behave thus out of cruelty. Once my mother said to me with glassy eyes, When from your bed you hear the baying of dogs in the countryside, hide under the blankets, nor mock their behavior. They have an unquenchable thirst for the infinite, like you, like me, like the rest of humanity, with long and pallid features. I even permit you to stand in front of the window to observe the spectacle sublime enough. Since then I have observed the dead one's wishes. Like the dogs, I too feel the need of the infinite. I cannot, I cannot satisfy this need. According to what I have been told, I am the son of man and of woman. That astonishes me. For the rest, what does it matter whence I come? I thought more of myself. For myself, if I had depended on my own will, I would rather have wished to be the son of the female shark whose hunger is the friend of tempests, and of the tiger of well-known cruelty. I will not be so malignant. 
You who look at me, go to a distance, for I exhale a poisonous breath. No one has yet seen the green wrinkles of my forehead, nor the projecting bones of my emaciated face, like the backbone of some great fish, or the rocks covering the seashore, or the abrupt alpine mountains which I often traveled over, when I wore hair of different color on my head. And when, during stormy nights, I prowl round the habitations of mankind, eyes burning, hair whipped by the storm wind, solitary as a stone in the middle of the road, I cover my withered face with a scrap of velvet, black as the soot which fills the insides of chimneys. It would not do for eyes to witness the ugliness that the supreme being with a smile of mighty hate has put upon me. Every morning when the sun rises, for others scattering joy and solitary heat to all nature, while no one of my features moves, gazing fixedly into the space filled with shadow, crouching in the depths of my beloved cave in a despair which intoxicates me like wine i tear my chest in shreds with powerful hands yet i feel that i have not got hydrophobia yet i feel that it is not only i who suffer yet i feel that i breathe like a condemned man who tries his muscles meditating upon their fate and who will soon mount the scaffold upright upon my pallet eyes closed i turn my neck slowly from right to left left to right during whole hours i do not fall stark dead from moment to moment when my neck can no longer continue to turn in the same inertia and stops in order to begin to turn the opposite way i see suddenly the horizon through the thick brushwood which cloaks the morth i do not see anything nothing but for the countryside which dances in whirlwinds with the trees and with the long files of birds which traverse the sky that upsets my blood and brain who is it then who hits me on the head with a bar of iron like a hammer striking an anvil i propose to declaim full-throatedly and unemotionally the cold and grave strophe you will hear be then attentive to its content and protect yourself against the painful impression which it cannot fail to leave like a blemish on your troubled thoughts do not imagine me to be at death's door for i am not yet a skeleton and age does not cling to my forehead put aside therefore any idea of comparison with the swan in that moment when his existence takes flight but see before you some monster whose face i am glad you cannot see but that is less horrible than its soul all the same i am no criminal enough on this point no great while has elapsed since i saw again the sea and walked the bridges of ships and my souvenirs are as lively as though it were but yesterday i left them be then if you are able at least as calm as myself in pursuing this which i already repent of offering you and do not blush at the thought of what the human heart is octopus with a silky gaze you whose soul is inseparable from my own you the most beautiful of the terrestrial globe lord of a harem of four hundred suckers you in whom the tender communicative virtue and divine grace sit nobly as though at home mutually agreeing and indestructibly united why are you not with me your mercury belly pressed to my aluminum chest both resting upon some rock by the shore and contemplating the view i love ancient ocean whose waves are crystal you resemble somewhat those azure marks to be seen on the bruised backs of cabin boys you are an enormous bruise upon the earth's body i like this analogy so at first sight of you a prolonged sigh of sadness passes which might be imagined the murmur of a suave breeze 
trees, leaving ineradicable traces upon the deeply moved spirit, and you recall to lovers' memories, often unknown to them, the crude origins of mankind, when it become acquainted with abiding sorrow. I salute you, ancient ocean. Ancient ocean, your harmoniously spherical form, which delights the solemn continents of geometry, but too well recalls to me the tiny eyes of mankind, similar to those of the wild boar for smallness, and to those of night birds in the circular perfection of contour. Nevertheless, mankind has thought himself beautiful in all ages. But I imagine, rather, that mankind only believes in his beauty out of conceit, and that he is not actually beautiful and suspects it, for why does he look at the faces of his fellows with so much scorn? I salute you, ancient ocean, ancient ocean. You are the symbol of identity, forever equal to yourself. You do not essentially change, and if your waves are wild in one place far off in some other region, they are in utter calm. You are not like mankind who stops in the street to watch two bulldogs seize each other by the neck, but does not stop when a funeral is passing, who is agreeable in the morning and bad-tempered in the evening, laughs today and cries tomorrow. I salute you, ancient ocean, ancient ocean. It is not impossible that, as fabulous and futile utilities for mankind are hidden in your breast, already you have given him the whale you do not easily allow the greedy eyes of natural science to divine the thousand secrets of your hidden organization you are modest man prides himself without ceasing and for trivialities i salute you ancient ocean ancient ocean the diverse families of fish which you feed have not sworn brotherhood with each other each family keeps to itself the temperaments and forms which vary in each of them explain satisfactorily what at first appears only an anomaly. So it is with man, who has not the same excuse. If a scrap of earth is inhabited by thirty million human beings, they think themselves bound not to interfere in the lives of their neighbors, fixed like roots in the adjoining scraps of earth. Descending from the great to the small, each man lives like a savage in his lair, rarely leaving it to visit his fellow, similarly crouched in another lair. The large universal family of humanity is a utopia worthy of the most mediocre logic. Besides, the sight of your fruitful dugs releases the idea of ingratitude, for one immediately thinks of all those numerous parents so ungrateful to the Creator as to abandon the fruit of their miserable union. I salute you, ancient ocean. Ancient ocean, your material grandeur can only be compared with the measure one imagines of how much active force was needed to engender the whole of your bulk. You can't be comprehended in a flash. To contemplate you, sight must turn its telescope in a continuous movement through the four quarters of the horizon. Even as a mathematician, in resolving a problem, is obliged to examine individually each possible variant before he can settle the difficulty. Man eats nourishing things and makes other efforts worthy of a better fate to appear plump. Let this adorable frog swell as much as it wants. Be at peace. It will never equal your hugeness, at least I suppose not. I salute you, ancient ocean. Ancient ocean, your waters are bitter. They taste exactly like the bile which criticism distills upon art, science, everything. If one is a genius, he is made to pass for an idiot. If someone else has a beautiful body, he is made a frightful hunchback. 
Indeed, man must feel his imperfections strongly, three parts of which are due entirely to himself, to criticize himself thus. I salute you, ancient ocean. Ancient ocean, mankind, despite the excellence of his method, and assisted by scientific methods of inquiry, has not yet arrived at measuring the giddy profundities of your abysms. Some you have which the longest and heaviest sounding lines have admitted inaccessible to fish it is permitted, not to man. Often have I asked myself which were the easier to discover, the ocean's depths or the heart of man. Often my hand to my forehead, standing on ships while the moon swung erratically between the masts, I have surprised myself abstracted to everything which was not the end I pursued, striving to resolve the difficult problem. Yes, which is the more obscure, the more impenetrable of the two, the sea or the human heart? If thirty years' experience of life may up to a certain point include the balance toward one or other of these solutions, it will be allowed me to say that despite the obscurity of the sea, it cannot tow the line, as far as this quality is concerned, with the obscurity of the human heart. I have had to do with men who have been virtuous. They died at sixty, and no one hesitated to cry out. They did good upon the earth, that is to say, they were charitable. That's all. It was not malicious. Everybody can do as much. Who can understand why two lovers who idolized each other the day before for some misunderstood word will part stung by hatred, by revenge, by love, and by remorse? Each draped in his lonely pride, never to see the other more. It is a miracle which each day renews itself and which is not the less miraculous. Who can understand why one relishes not only the general disgrace of one's fellows, but even the particular disgraces of one's nearest friends, though afflicted at the same time? An irrefutable example to close the series, man hypocritically says yes and thinks no. That is why the young wild boars of humanity have so much trust in each other and are not egotistical. Psychology has still far to go. I salute you, ancient ocean. Ancient ocean, you are so powerful that mankind has learnt it to his cost. It might well employ all the resources of its genius, incapable of dominating you. It has found a master. I say it has found something stronger than itself. This something has a name. That name is Ocean. You inspire him with such fear that he respects you. Despite that, you make his heaviest machines waltz easily, gracefully, and with elegance. You make them leap gymnastically to the sky and amazingly plunge to the very bottom of your realms. A clown would be jealous. They are happy if you do not ultimately wrap them in your frothing folds to go and see, without the help of a train, how the fish are in your watery entrails. Above all, how they themselves do. Man says, I am more shrewd than the sea. It is possible. It is even fairly true. But he is more afraid of the sea than the sea of him, and that it is unnecessary to prove. This watchful patriarch, coeval with the earliest epochs of our suspended sphere, smiles pitifully when he assists at the sea fights of nations. Behold the hundred leviathans issued from the hands of humanity, the emphatic commands of superiors, the cries of the wounded, the shock of cannons, are noises expressly made to obliterate a few seconds. It seems that the drama is over and that the sea has put everything into its maw. 
Its jaws are frightful. It must be enormous toward the back in the direction of the unknown. Finally, to crown the stupid and not even interesting comedy, one sees some crane hung in the sky, belated by tiredness, which begins crying without interrupting the sweep of its flight. Hold, I find that disagreeable. In the distance there are black specks. I have closed my eyes. They are gone. I salute you, ancient ocean. Ancient ocean, majestic bachelor. When you survey the grave solitude of your phlegmatic kingdoms, justly you swell with pride at your own magnificence, and the truthful praises which I hasten to offer you, voluptuously swayed by the soft exhalations of your majestic deliberation, the most grandiose amongst the attributes with which the sovereign might have gratified you, centered in somber mystery, you spread out over all its sublime surface, your incomparable waves with the calm feeling of your eternal might they follow each other in parallel separated by brief intervals hardly does one grow smaller when another goes to meet it growing larger and accompanied by the melancholy noise of spume which melts away to warn that all is spume thus human beings living waves dying one after the other monotonously but without leaving a spumy noise the bird of passage rests upon them confidently and abandons itself to their movement full of proud grace until the bones of its wings have received the accustomed vigor to continue the aerial pilgrimage i wish human majesty were not merely the incarnation of the reflection of your own i ask a good deal and this sincere wish is to your glory your moral grandeur image of the infinite is like the philosopher's reflections woman's love bird's divine beauty the poet's meditations you are more beautiful than the night answer me ocean will you be my brother stir yourself impetuously more still more if you desire me to compare you to the vengeance of god stretch your livid claws clearing a path across your own bosom well done unroll your terrifying waves hideous ocean comprehended of myself alone and before whom i fall prostrated on my knees man's majesty is borrowed he will not impose upon me at all you yes oh when you advance crest high and terrible surrounded by your torturous folds as though by a court magnetic and ferocious rolling your waves one upon the other conscious of what you are while from the deeps of your breast and as though overcome by an intense sorrow which i am unable to penetrate you utter that hollow bellowing so much feared of men even though breathing upon the shore they regard you in safety then i see that the high right of calling myself your equal does not belong to me that is why before your superiority i will devote all my love to you and nobody knows how much love my aspirations toward the beautiful contain if you did not make me think painfully of my fellows who make the most ironical contrast with you the most comical antithesis ever seen throughout creation i cannot love you i hate you why do i come back to you for the thousandth time to your friendly arms which half open to kiss my burning brow which sees its fever vanish at their contact i do not know your hidden destiny everything which concerns you interests me tell me then if you are the dwelling place of the prince of darkness tell me tell me ocean only to me so as not to sadden those who so far have but known illusions and whether the breath of satan makes the tempests which lift your salty waters to the clouds you must tell me because i would be happy to know hell so near mankind i want this to be the last strophe of my invocation 
Consequently, I want once again to hail you and say goodbye. Ancient ocean with crystal waves, my eyes moisten with abundant tears, and I have not the strength to continue, for I feel that the moment to go back among man of the brutal continents is come, but courage, let us make a great effort and end with the sentiment of duty, our destiny upon this earth, hail, ancient ocean. If it is sometimes logical to relate oneself to the manifestations of phenomena, this first canto would finish here. Do not be severe on him who but still tunes his lyre. Nevertheless, should you wish to be impartial, you will have received already a decided impression despite his imperfections. As for myself, I am setting to work again to produce within a not-too-delayed period of time a second canto. The decline of the 19th century will see its poet all the same to begin with. One should not start with a masterpiece, but follow the laws of nature. He was born on American shores, at the mouth of La Plata, there where two races, once rivals, now strive to surpass each other in material and moral progress. Buenos Aires, Queen of the South, and Montevideo, the coquette, hold out to each other friendly hands across the Argentine waters of the great estuary. But continual war has fixed his destructive empire upon the fields and reaps with joy his numerous victims. Goodbye, old man. And if you have read me, think of me. Young man, do not despair, for despite your contrary opinion, you have a friend in the vampire. If you include the Sarcopteracris, which produces the oak gall, you will have two. End of Meldoror by Comte de Lautremont, translated by John Rudkirk.